The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Last month, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi welcomed senior Taliban leaders to Beijing, standing shoulder to shoulder for the photographers. China is carefully watching events unfolding in Afghanistan. And while it hasn't yet recognized the Taliban government, the Beijing meeting was a nod towards a potential alliance. But replacing America in Afghanistan wouldn't be without its risks. Can Beijing really succeed where Washington has failed? America's 20-year mission there has had a high cost both in terms of lives and money. And what would a closer alliance mean for the Uyghur minority who live to the west of China, considering the close links that the Taliban has traditionally had with Uyghur militant groups? To discuss, I'm joined today by two experts. Tom Miller is author of China's Asian Dream and an expert on China's strategy on the continent. And Dr. Mike Martin is author of An Intimate War and a former British army officer who served in Afghanistan. Tom, to start with, what do you think Beijing will have made of events in the last few weeks? There's a lot of analysis flying around that the West retreat is a victory for China. I would say that's far too simple. I mean, obviously, you can say, say ostensibly that anything that is bad for the US and bad for the US allies is good for China. Okay, so, you know, this has obviously been very bad for the credibility of the US and anything that makes them look bad, you know, Beijing is going to be happy. At the same time, though, what Beijing fears more than anything else is uh, instability on its border. And um, I think you can almost say that the US has sort of left um, a booby trap or a ticking time bomb, whatever metaphor you might like to um, use for China to defuse. And I think there are sort of two major concerns that China has here. One is that, you know, it just can't afford instability, as I said, on its Western frontier, because it fears that could stoke terrorism um, and also extremism in the neighbouring region of, um, of um, Xinjiang. And also it's worried about protecting its investments in Pakistan, which is one of the most important locations, actually you could probably say the most important um, lo- location of its Belt and Road Initiative projects. Michael, do you agree? Yeah, largely. Of course, the ties between Afghanistan and Pakistan, really the three of them form this fascinating little triangle, which I think I think is why we're seeing we've got this sort of hiatus now while the evacuation of Western citizens is going on, where the Talibs haven't announced their government. So who the ministers are and the no surrounding countries or international players have made any definite moves towards recognition. For me, the real question is if. China ends up being the primary sponsor because it's not just about recognition it's about sponsorship no Afghan government for the last 200 years has existed without an international sponsor somebody to pay the bills and so if that's not going to be the US and that's pretty politically difficult for Biden to you know imagine him going into 2024 and his opponents saying well we started your term fighting the Taliban and finished it paying for them that's not going to work so if China ends up being the major supporter of 
you know, paying the bills of the Afghan government, the Afghan Taliban government. I agree with Tom. I think you could actually view that as a strategic victory for the United States. Okay, so the way it was handled was appalling. But if you know, if you're a real cynic, you'd argue that actually the Americans needed to create utter chaos in the way that they left. So China had no choice but to step in and do some kind of arrangement with Pakistan in order to stabilize Afghanistan. In many ways, you could actually view this as an American masterstroke. Tom, do you think that that's, I mean, as as relevant as it might be to think about a character that the Chinese government has? Is it within Chinese government's character to sponsor a state like that? Because, I mean, it, it, one can say that, you know, Americans, it's not the first time they've played with world policemen. They've, they've channeled funding to a place uh, for relatively ideological and potentially geopolitical goals but China doesn't seem to be doing that as much maybe with the exception of North Korea do you think it would do that in Afghanistan? Well I think as Mike says it may have no choice but to get involved Um, and so I think we will see a lot more development aid flowing in from China and um, it does have a history of working with you know very difficult very very dodgy governments Um, and it's got itself actually badly into debt in places like Venezuela um, for example but here I'd say I think the most relevant example would be Pakistan. So, you know, uh, Pakistan is also a difficult place. Um, it's not quite as chaotic, not quite as unstable um, as um, Afghanistan. But, you know, China, the reason that China is doing so much there is, is really, as, as, as one expert in Beijing um, put it to me a few years ago, he's somebody who's very close to the government and works in Pakistan a lot. And he said that the, the major reason for China's investment in the China-Pakistan economic corridor is really, it's a giant bribe to the Pakistani government, um, whereby they're saying, look, you know, we will lend you lots and lots of money and we will help you build all this stuff that you need. So particularly sort of better roads and transport um, infrastructure, and then especially actually power. So China's been building power stations, coal fired, but also hydro dams as well and lending huge amounts of money in order to do this. And it doesn't expect to get all, all, of, all of that money back. And there's a reason for that. So it's saying, look, we will do all this for you. Um, you know, we don't entirely sort of trust you here, but you better get your house in order, right? So we do not want to hear that, you know, we have extremists who are being harboured on the Afghan border, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, I think, you know, China will have to go in. And I think the bigger question is, to what extent it goes in. And, you know, uh, China's been worried about extremism um, in Xinjiang now for, you know, sort of 30 years, but particularly the last 20 years. And there's a lot of kind of kind of debate over sort of how much terrorism um, there really is, you know, mm. and a lot of the unrest in Xinjiang is, is, is really caused by repression there. And, you know, the kinds of violence we've seen, you know, China always calls it terrorism, but a lot of people would say, actually, no, it's, this is what happens um, if you, if you squeeze people hard enough. But, you know, whether, so, so, so whatever the kind of reality here, China does, does believe that terrorism has been sponsored out of Pakistan, out of Afghanistan, and it is willing to pay to try to persuade governments, if you like, that they have to get a grip on that. Can I pick up a theme of China? You know, it's what you started with, Tom. No good choices for China here, and it may have no choice but to get drawn in. And this really is actually what happens with superpowers is they end up with what's the least worst option. 
And there's a confluence of interest in some respects with Pakistan, the transport infrastructure build in return for China getting a warm water port in the Indian Ocean, which enables them to avoid, you know, the US controlled Malacca Straits. Also, there's a confluence of interest over boxing in India. But then there's this divergence of interest where Pakistan's preferred method of dealing with India for 40 years has been sponsoring militant Islam to basically provide jihadi groups to fight in Kashmir and as well in Afghanistan to provide, you know, to stop the Indians boxing them in on that frontier. That's exactly the opposite method of which China wishes to go about its foreign policy because they're worried about blowback. And obviously in the 90s, we had the Chinese going to the Taliban when they were the government in Afghanistan and saying, well, you've got Uyghurs in your ranks. Can you hand them over? And the Taliban refused. So this is really where China is stuck in a total quandary at the moment. I think that's right. But you know, I mean, the question is, is what China does. Um, and clearly in its meetings with the um, Taliban, in recent years, and the most recent meeting was last month, actually, you know, they've been dangling this kind of carrot in front of them saying, look, you know, we can help um, reconstruct um, your country. Sure. Um, and, you know, China will always try to use economic means if it, if it can. Um, you know, China's going to be very, very reluctant to do anything military. So we're not going to be seeing state building no, that would be, it has no, um, it has even less ex- expertise in that than, um, than other countries have. And uh, no, it, it, we will not see boots on the ground unless something very, very desperate happens. Mike, I thought you were quite interesting when you've written before about how China's very statist approach would never work in Afghanistan. So, you know, any political transference of lessons, I guess, principles of politics would never work because Afghanistan is just so unstatist compared to China. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Tom's obviously the real expert on this, but socialism with Chinese characteristics under great leader President Xi. I mean, it, and there's echoes of this in Chinese history, right? They're worried about instability on their borders, but they're worried about internal instability. You know, maintaining internal harmony is seen as a primary priority of, of any government in China. Now, that kind of approach, you know, Afghanistan is, is highly decentralised, highly factionalized, multiple languages, ethnicities, tribes, clans, militias, warlords, and so on and so forth. And what's more, all those factions are heavily armed after 43 years of civil war. So I'm not quite sure. There's two things I'm not sure about. One is what does tipping money into that do? Because, mm. you know, if you've got a conflict ecosystem, you know, let's draw, take this back to conflict theory, right? If you've got a conflict ecosystem of loads of factions fighting each other in a civil war, if you just tip money into that, then that will increase the levels of conflict rather than decrease them because people start to squabble over that money. And then secondly, then China, you know, as Tom was saying, will want to slash needs to protect its investments. But how do you do that? And if you're trying to, I don't know, build a pipeline or a road or get minerals out or whatever, that infrastructure will cross multiple territories of different clans, militias, warlords, you know, all of the above, who all want to extract their rent. And so it's not clear to me how China plans to, I mean, you've seen a lot of stuff coming out of the Chinese state broadcast in the last couple of weeks, obviously crowing over the US's humiliation, but also kind of saying, oh, we're not going to make the same mistakes, we're just going to pour some money in. Well, it's not like the Americans didn't think that that's how they were going to solve <laughs> Afghanistan as well, we'll just pour money in. Like, that's not, that, <laughs> that will make things worse. And I wonder whether China will end up getting sucked in in a way that it doesn't want to. Yeah, I mean, Tom, on on that coverage within China, 
I'm interested in what you feel about it because having read what's been how the last few weeks have been reported in Chinese media, they are quite critical of the Americans, of course, but they're don't doing it in a very smug way. I think you know Mike is right to say call it crowing. Do you think there's an arrogance there to think that actually if the Americans failed, we can do it better? That might actually you know tip them into it in a kind of irrational way. I don't think so. I mean, there's definitely arrogance there, and there's been arrogance I'm in Beijing really since the global financial crisis. That's you know that that was the big kind of shift in how China viewed the world. But you know, uh, the Chinese are not stupid. They're anything but stupid, and they will know the history of the region, and no one has ever succeeded there. And so China will do everything I think in its power not to get stuck in some、um, quagmire in Afghanistan. That's why I say he'll never put boots、um, on the ground unless something really, really des- desperate happens.、Um, but to go to Mike's point, though, when it comes to pouring in money, but of course, you know, for China, economic development、um, is the kind of be all and end all. It's it's the great god. It's the kind of silver 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 bullet if you're Chinese that solves all all and every problem. Okay. And of course, they've been trying trying to do this、um, in Xinjiang for the last twenty years. You know, sort of pouring in investment. Initially, you know, most of that was only really helping、um, Han businesses, and very little of it sort of ended up in the pockets、um, of Uyghurs and other Muslim groups、um, in in the region. And that sort of sort of unfairness and and that some、um, inequality is one of the reasons why you have if it's not actually separatism. You know, you, you have a lot of discontent.、Um, okay. But you know, China still kind of continues some with that, and you know we've seen a lot of the infrastructure building on the borders there is designed to、uh, promote border trade, and they kind of hoped that some of those local groups would 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 kind of see that as a great opportunity and think, well, you know what, I can make money, and so rather than kind of worrying about you know sort of building a, a kind of Uzbekistan or East Turkestan or whatever or, or whatever, they would say, no, actually, we can get rich. And I think the problem though is that the The Chinese government just do not understand religion. So you know, for them, their kind of religion is economic development, and they don't get that there are sort of sort of other things that people care about. And so you know, they have been pouring them in, in money, and it simply hasn't worked. And so they can try the same in Afghanistan,、um, and it's not going to work there either. Well, let's talk about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs because they've already come up numerous times in this in this discussion. And Mike, I think I'm right in saying that the very small border, relative in relative terms, of 47 miles between China and Afghanistan borders Xinjiang, which is obviously where the Uyghurs live. What is the history of Uyghurs and the, the Taliban? Are there militant Uyghurs in Afghanistan? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, there's a there's a is slash was a, a militant Uyghur group called the East Turkestan Independence Movement, and you know there's a, obviously there's a number of militant groups in that region. There's a kind of alphabet soup of different、um, militant groups. Those guys have been around since the、uh, late eighties and worked fairly extensively. I mean, they were sort of had they were ETIM guys fighting for the Talibs in the nineteen nineties, which is you know that, that example that I. Spoke of earlier, where the Chinese actually formally approached the Taliban when they're in government and asked them to give up some Uyghur fighters. This would have been the Taliban government in the early nineties, and the Taliban refused. It's not clear exactly how many Uyghurs are fighting Afghanistan at the moment. I mean, a recent UN report on terrorism lists, you know, figure in the low hundreds, and particularly in Badakhshan province, which borders—that's the province that borders Xinjiang in China—that has this forty-six mile border. 
And, and that is actually an area where China has been involved in doing some training of border troops, actually, recently. Mm. And a couple of months ago, they actually signed a deal with the now previous administration in Kabul to build a road um, along the piece of land that basically to join up Kabul and the China via road, because there is no road. It's a closed border. But that whole area there is certainly where the Uyghurs who are were fighting the Ghani government are most likely to be. We saw about, I think, from the meeting that Mullah Barada, the chief Taliban spokesman, had with the Chinese foreign minister, where the Taliban stated, or rather the Taliban political leadership stated, that the Uyghurs are an internal Chinese problem. Well, that's fine, but the Taliban are quite factionalised. So there's there's mm. differences of opinion between the political leadership and the military leadership. It's a generational difference. The political leadership is largely from the Taliban government of the 1990s, a bit more moderate. The military leadership is much younger, much more radicalised. They've been fighting for 20 years. And there's also differences between different military factions. So exactly what the Taliban, you know, quote unquote, the Taliban line is mm. on the Uyghurs is not clear. And I think what we may find is that the Uyghurs find or Uyghur militants find that there are pockets in Afghanistan that they can survive in. And then that creates a further problem for China, because if they have recognized the Taliban government by that point, they will then go to that Taliban government and say, you know, well, this you agreed that you'd keep the Uyghurs away from us. And then the Taliban then has an internal factional problem between different factions within the Taliban. So it's a further trap for China down the line. Mike, what do people in Central Asia think about what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Do they see China in any less of a way because they identify with these people or do they not care? It's quite hard to speak for an entire region of people, but I I think maybe if I could slightly reframe your question and then you can tell me off um, or or re-ask me it. But it seems to me that, you know, come back to this theme of have the Americans actually pulled a strategic blinder by creating a problem for China on its border? I think a further problem they've created is by in effectively allowing Islamic militancy in Afghanistan. That then creates the possibility of that spreading to the Central Asian states. I mean, Tajikistan in the 1990s fought a civil war against Islamic militants. So, you know, we've got the, there's Uzbek, Turkmen, there's plenty of Islamic movements in Central Asia. And that's, of course, and Tom, you know, the expert of this with his book, that, of course, brings Russia and China into, you know, they are traditionally the Central Asian states or Russia, sees them as their sphere of interest. Of course, China's pushing into that region with the BRI. The presence of Islamic militancy in that area is only going to create, make that relationship, I think, more problematic. So it creates a further problem for Russia, and I think it creates a further dynamic to the Russia-China relationship. Did you want to come back on that, Tom? Yeah, well, I sort of got to go back actually first on, on what you asked, on your question on how people feel about what's happening um, in China. Well, um, as Mike says, you can't speak for, you know, there are there are five countries in Central Asia um, and lots of different people. And, and, and often there's a, a big gap anywhere in the world. You see this in Africa, especially, actually, um, between um, what the elites think and how they behave mm. with China and how ordinary people think. So I mean, that's one for distinction sure. to make. And of course, you know, the, the governments of Central Asia um, work very closely uh, with China. They're all members of the Shanghai co- co- Cooperation Organization, if I can get that out. Um, and, you know, um, as a part of its constitution, you know, they've all promised to fight against separatism 
terrorism and extremism, the so-called three evils. And um, they're all very fearful, actually, of kind of unrest in their own countries. And so, you know, they will work along with China on this. Um, and then next door, you have um, Russia with the Collective Security Treaty Organization, um, which has a big security interest mm-hmm. in, the, in the region, too. And they're all sort of very, very worried about any kind of extremism sort of sort of seeping across the borders. But then if you look at sort of ordinary people, you know, you have lots of Uyghurs actually in Central Asia. Um, and, you know, if you go to the region, you will see actually that, you know, the other languages are often very, very close. So, you know, Kyrgyz is basically mm. the same as Uyghur. It's very, very similar. They can, they can understand one another, for example. Um, and so there are lots and lots of cultural ties. And then people actually move backwards and forwards the whole time between, between these countries. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of shuttle trade, um, for example, and um, but then you have you know uh, ordinary people. At least you know, when I was hanging around in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, um, you know, there's a great sense of sort of sort of yellow peril, um, even if, if that makes sense. And actually, you kind of hear that phrase, even though these people are sort of ethnically, you know, they're quite close. I mean, they look at not at, not at the Uyghurs, but at, at sort of Han China, you know, and they're terrified of China sort of sort of not so much expanding its borders, although actually they do worry about China taking land. But it's 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 more about China's economic inroads and political inroads, and sort of they worry that they'll lose their independence. And of course, you've got to think mm. that you know these countries have only been around for thirty years as independent states, and so you know they do worry about that. I think there are a lot of different views out there, and I'm sure there is sympathy for what's happening with the, you know, with the Uyghurs. And it's not just Uyghurs who've been interned, you know, it's also Kazakhs, it's Kyrgyz. And so, you know, some of these people, they actually lived in Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan and they crossed the border to see relatives or do business or whatever, and they've been picked up in this. So I'm sure there is sympathy among some people, but it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of mixed picture. Tom, that's really interesting because I was going to ask you, you know, what, how these smaller Central Asian states saw China in terms of you know, having this giant on the doorstep. Because you must be, I mean, going back to what Mike was saying about the least worst option, you know, for these countries, cooperation with China or not must just be, you know, balancing the costs of any of the options because you don't want to get too close, but you don't want to reject them too much. Of course. I mean, there's always an element of hedging um, and you have Russia on one side and you have China um, on the other side. Um but, you know, very much in, in the last 15 years, they have moved closer to China, at least economically. You know, China is top dog in the region and has been now for a decade um, or so. And, you know, sort of um, Russia left a sort of vacuum there. So Russia is still present politically. It's still present in terms of, you know, it's sort of security. And the area is highly Russified, right? So people speak Russian as well as their local language. There's no cultural connection to kind of China at all. But economically, you know, China, for example, it controls a quarter of all Kazakh oil. And you know, China literally keeps the lights on if you go to Kyrgyzstan or, or, kind of, or, or Tajikistan. So, you know, China imports a lot of um, Turkmen gas and it built a spur from one of its lines that goes through Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, which, which it didn't need to. Right. That this was this was a cost that China didn't need. But it did that, I think, to kind of cement relations in those countries. And, you know, one of the aims of and call it the Belt and Road Initiative, really, it's China's infrastructure um, diplomacy is to build these relationships, right? So, you know, you're, you're trying to create economic dependence to a certain extent, lubricated with, uh, with Chinese cash, and sort of, sort of build up sort of political relationships. You know, China across the world is trying to build up sort of pockets of political influence. And of course, you know, it's very important to have these on your doorstep. And so, yeah, of course, China is very, very active there. I worry that if China thinks it can do that in Afghanistan 
it's going to find out that everybody thought they could go in and buy the Afghans. And what they what ends up happening is that the outsiders don't end up being the puppeteers that the Afghans do because they're exceptionally skilled. Uh, or rather the Afghan elite is the, the Afghan armed elite is exceptionally skilled at extracting resources out of foreigners. I think um, on that point, there's no accident that China really hasn't done anything in the in the country. It's, it's not a member of the Belt and Road Initiative at the moment. You know, um, yeah. it has a couple of big potential investments that haven't gone anywhere. And, you know, it hasn't thrown away money in Afghanistan and, you know, it will be reluctant to do so. I mean, certainly, you know, there is talk now of China extending CPEC into Afghanistan and there are these nice kind of, you know, ideas of building a railway from Keta to Kandahar or, you know, extending a highway from Peshawar to Kabul or whatever it might be. And, you know, China is extremely good um, at not perhaps always making promises, putting out, you know, sort of mm, coming up with a few ideas. nice ideas. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it gets lots of headlines. It happens all over the world. You know, I, I, it, it happens in Europe. You know, China there has its group of 17 plus one, you know, where it works with 17 Central and Eastern European countries. You know, for a long time, it's been building supposedly, you know, this wonderful railway between Belgrade and Budapest. Nothing's happened. So, you know, China really is doing a lot around the world, but it is also makes a lot of promises um, and they don't come to fruition. And it's very easy, I think, for Beijing to tell the Taliban, well, look, you know, if you play ball, we can do this. But they have to play ball. And if they don't play ball, I don't think China will do it. I think that's quite a funny macrocosm of what Chinese business relationships are like as well. I don't know, Tommy, if you found this, where people, you know, just schmooze you. They will say, oh, you know, we should do this, we should do that. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah, although, basis, I mean, yeah. uh, you should speak to the Chinese about India. <laughs> they say that yeah. um, the Indians are much better at this than they are. It's a complete nightmare. <laughs> So, Mike, we've already talked about how throwing more money at the problem is potentially just throwing it down the sink. What other pitfalls do you think there are for Chinese policy when it comes to Afghanistan? Like, what are the worst things they could possibly be doing? I think there's a danger. Look, all states have this problem. They tend to understand other states through the lens of themselves, right? So, you know, when they're speaking to the Taliban government, they will tend to see them as the kind of controlling, governing entity. And then, you know, there's a unity there that perhaps isn't there. It's already not clear whether the Taliban will end up controlling the entire territory of Afghanistan. There's already rumours about pockets of resistance and mm. so on and so forth. So that's that's the first thing. As we've discussed, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, the Taliban weren't expecting to win this quickly. The government of Afghanistan collapsed a lot quicker than even the Talibs were expecting. So all of a sudden, they're having to decide what the what the lineup is in the cabinet, for example, right? And that involves a whole series of discussions that they were helping to defer around the Uyghurs. You know, what's our policy on the Uyghurs? Drugs. Mm. What's our policy on drugs? Um, you know, when several major factions of Taliban are controlled by drugs, what are we going to do about Iran and water? Uh, what's our plan on women's rights? Actually, all of these discussions were at either non-existent or at a nascent stage. The Taliban thinking went as far as we're going to win this war, but they were expecting it to take months or years and you know, it took three years for the soviet government to collapse they were not expecting weeks and so now there's going to be all of this backwards and forwards and internal discussions and i think the worst thing that china can do is assume that once the talibs have announced their government that it's good to go 
and they can just tip some money in. But I, I, you know, it's a real problem for them. And Tom, finally, I just wanted to talk to you briefly about the impact of the war on terror on China itself, because we think about it often through a Western lens. But I remember I was a child in China at the time, and I remember seeing 9/11 on TV, not quite understanding what was going on, but feeling the entire atmosphere in the room and adults around me being incredibly shaken, even though it was not their civilization or whatever it is, not their part of the world that was attacked. I was wondering, what, what do you think about the impact of the war? on terror on Chinese policy, the way China sees its Muslim minority, and related, very big question for you. I think in the first place, it saw it as a sort of opportunity, a strategic opportunity. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to know exactly what was happening in Xinjiang back in the 80s. There weren't really any kind of reports then. But, you know, in the 1990s, that was when you first started seeing reports of sort of, what do you want to call it, you know, riots, you know, uh, um, sort of insurgency, sort of separatist sort of stuff going on. So, um, you know, the first big one is a place called Baren, which is just south of Kashgar in 1990. And, you know, but there are a few of these instances. And then um, you, you never heard about sort of terrorism then in China. You know, you heard about splitism, mm. if you like, sort of separatism. And you never heard about ETIM, as Mike was talking about before, you know. Um, but then suddenly you had 9-11, and then just a month later, so two months later, in November, I think, of 2001, you know, China suddenly came up with, with this whole kind of whole argument that all of this stuff in the 1990s had been orchestrated by this kind of nebulous sort of mysterious group based in Afghanistan with connections to al-Qaeda. Yeah. And they'd been sort of planning all this stuff and no one, no one had really heard of them at the time. And so, you know, I think if you think back, you know, you, you had Bush sort of, sort of sort of saying you're either with us um, um, or you're against us. And so, you know, I think, I think the Chinese thought, well, actually, you know, we can we can use this mm. and, you know, and then we can we can get some kind of U.S. support here for our, for our war threat terrorism or whatever it might be. And so they got ETIM Eat, were then put on, on the U.S.'s or one of the U.S.'s terrorists on lists. And, you know, so I think that was kind of quite helpful for China. You know, obviously, there's there's been a lot of fear in China about what they call terrorism. And I don't think it's all made up. You know, um, they may be misdiagnosing the problem at times, but certainly, you know, they think that there is a problem. Mm. But I don't think, you know, I lived in China between 2000 and 2015. Um, and it wasn't really something I heard that much about, to be honest. It felt quite a long way away. And, you know, Afghanistan is on China's it's back doorstep, if you like, but it's still, you know, it's still a long way away. It's still 4,000 kilometers from Beijing. And mm-hmm. I don't think what was going on in Afghanistan felt very close when I was there. So it's not something that many ordinary people, I think, were, were that worried about. I think the, the other thing to say here is that, you know, China liked the war on terror because it gave them, because it, it distracted the US, right? So it's, it's sort of exploited the, um, the fact that the US was embroiled in Afghanistan, embroiled in, great, in the greater mid, Middle East to kind of get on with the business of developing and, you know, mm. building a strong military and all those other wonderful things that China's been doing to, you know, to make China great again. So, you know, they saw this as a, as a strategic opportunity. So I think the war on terror for China has been fantastic. Mm. I think it's interesting, especially the use of that rhetoric, as you've suggested, you know, when you watch official documentaries about what's happening in Xinjiang, the re-education camps, they often talk about Western terrorist attacks. They often show footage of London Bridge or whatever it is. And, you know, they say this is the same thing. We're just dealing with it in our own way. And look, if they deal with it the way that we're dealing with it, they wouldn't have this problem. Um, it's very much bandwagoning onto that. I was going to say on the rhetoric point, you know, from an Afghanistan perspective, in the 80s, 
the framing of the Afghan war was of kind of godless communists against, you know, Mujahideen fighting a holy war. And this is important because great empires or countries that see themselves as great empires like to cloak their geopolitical activities in a framework. And then, of course, we've just spoken about the global war on terror, which was America's cloaking, if you like, of a series of military and political activities over the last 20 years. If China moves into Afghanistan, or at least increases its involvement in Afghanistan, what will be the Chinese framing for the next 20 years of that involvement that allows it to conduct its geopolitical activities? Well, Tom, what do you think? Because China's not very ideological about its framing. It doesn't have... It, it prides itself on... Yeah, that. no, I mean, its framing would be very simple. Um, it's it's that we are coming in to help rebuild this country. You know, you know this is this is win-win because, you know, I mean, they are neighbours of, of ours and we want... And we want you know, sort of friendly, friendly relations um, with them. But, you know, this is what China says about all of its activities um, overseas. You know, it's, you know, what China's saying is, look, we've done all this. We've grown rich by, uh, by massive investment. We know how to do it. We have the financing to help you do it. And we have the construction companies who can do it cheaply for you. So, you know, you have this great development opportunity and we can bring it to you. And I, I, I think that if they do move into Afghanistan, that is how they will frame it. They will say, you know, they will say, look, you've had um, this US occupation, if you like, for, for the, you know, for the past 20 years, and what have they brought you? You know, not so much. Um, and we can, we can potentially bring much more economically, you know, we will build you all these big new roads that you need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whether that will actually happen, you know, we've already said, we don't know. But I think, you know, if they do move in, it will be through the framework um, of economic reconstruction and economic development. And Tom, very finally, can I just ask you what you think uh, the role of Chinese public opinion is in all of this? I was trawling through Chinese social media this week, looking at how people were commentating on the events in Afghanistan. And while there were certain people who were saying celebrating the beating back of what they call American imperialism, there were also those who were worried for Afghan women, worried about what this meant for their rights. Because after all, even in China, people think that women should be able to have an education, to go to have a career. So, I mean, I guess the question is, A, do you think public opinion in China matters uh, to our discussion here? It means clearly not a democracy. And B, if it does matter, what will it be like over China getting closer to the Taliban and potentially throwing more money into it? Well, obviously, public opinion does matter. It matters in every country, you know, however repressive it is. You know, it, you, know you, ha- you have to keep people on board. And it matters um, in China, too. Of course, it matters less in China, much less than it does in a more democratic um, um, country, but yes, you know um, they do care what people think to a certain extent, and you know they, uh, th- there was a little bit of worry I think in Beijing when people a few years back were criticising China for funneling too much money into overseas projects, and actually you know throwing away money. So for example, in say Venezuela, you know China is owed about sixty billion dollars there. Right. And, you know, so th- th- there is there are consequences of dealing with, you know, uh, with very dodgy governments. And there's been blowback, you know, in all sorts of places around the world. And, you know, of course, people are critical when, for example, if you um, even look at Myanmar, you know, um, China had 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 some massive investments in there which haven't worked when the um, when the junta originally fell and they were put on hold and there was criticism then. And in fact, at one point, there were people sending calcium tablets um, to the, you know, to the foreign office there, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, saying, you know, you need to get backbone. And so you know, public opinion does matter in China. 
But you know, it, will it will it be strong enough for China sort of sort of not to go in and um, deliver development aid and to help reconstruct the country? No, um, I don't think so. But they've got to be a little bit careful about how they do it. They they can't be seen to be throwing money into um, into a black hole. If you and if you look at Belt and Road financing um, over the past sort of three years or so, you know, it has decreased enormously. So the Belt and Road has slimmed down, and that is because you know the. The, the Chinese government worried about throwing too much money away, but also, you know, it, it was definitely, definitely listened, I think, a little bit to some of the criticism out there. So yes, I think it does matter. But, you know, when it comes down to it, um, Beijing will always do what it wants to do. Tom Miller, Mike Martin, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.